0: Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. i mentioned a couple of weeks ago uh that i'm a forgetful person i I forget a lot of things Um, i can remember things that happened long off in the distance you know many sports statistics and random bible facts and all that but i can't remember what you said to me like six minutes ago Uh, and some of you have reminded me that i'm a forgetful person so you know some of you have had a meeting with you are like i know you're forgetful and uh but i want to remind you of this meeting and so i'm glad that you're listening Uh, just don't weaponize that against me. Don't say, well, you know, I told you this, don't do that. I don't think any of you would. Um, But uh, one of the greatest inventions for me ever, because I am a forgetful person, is the phone notifications on my phone. Uh, notifications on my phone have been a, a game changer over the last 10, 12 years, because as I've had those, it's helped me not forget important things. And there have been so many times that a not- notification on a phone has reminded me that I've got a meeting coming up or a deadline or a project to do. And so those notifications have been a really big help to me. Uh, but sometimes, and I'm sure you feel this way too, every time you hear that ding or that buzz on your cell phone, if you've got it on silent, there's a little bit of panic in your heart because there's somebody else or something else wanting your attention, Anybody else have that feeling where you just feel a little overwhelmed, you feel a little annoyed, you're like, I cannot answer one more thing, I don't know why that has anything to do with what I'm doing today. Uh, they can be helpful, but they can also be incredibly overwhelming. And a few years ago during Lent, and Lent is a season where we consider and think about the things that we can maybe restrict in order to focus our hearts towards God, I actually completely took all notifications off my phone. I took social media off my phone. I stopped getting email notifications. It was an absolute game changer. And the only notifications I really got were, were text messages from my family. And I've actually even since then began to tailor how often I get text message notifications. So during certain periods of the day, I have a focus at home notification, only phone calls and uh, notifications from my family come through. And what I've noticed as I've done that, what I've found is that, that the more that I limit the messages I receive, the more I'm able to focus on the messages that matter. The more I'm able to limit the intake of information, less overwhelmed I am. And, and what I've found is I'm more attuned to what's important because I'm just kind of tuning out all the excess noise, And this morning, we're going to be looking at how God is trying to get Abram to focus on the one message that matters. Abram has been internalizing all of this information around him, this idea that he has to have a son in order to matter. He lives in a culture where not having children was often seen as a curse. We saw last week how he had internalized the culture's message that you can do things outside of God's will, outside of God's plan in order to try to thrive. And he tried to kind of engineer that with Hagar And we see here how God is bringing him to a point where he focuses on the one thing that matters, and that is the promise of God. That God had made a promise to him. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at Abram and the covenant. Now, you may be thinking, if you've been here with us for a few weeks, or you've read the book of Genesis, that this seems a little bit redundant. Like, haven't we heard this before? And you're right. We have heard this similar message two other times. We've seen in Genesis chapter 12, where God initially makes the covenant with Abraham. He calls him out of darkness. He calls him out of, of Ur, and he says, I'm going to make you into a people and into a nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you all these things. So we saw in Genesis chapter 15 a couple of weeks ago that God reaffirmed that covenant. He reassured Abram in his doubts. And it seems a little redundant to talk about it a third time, Right? Here he comes again, reminding Abram, I've made this covenant with you. I've made these promises with you. I'm gonna do this again. And it seems so redundant. It seems like such a kind of a repeated story that liberal scholars actually would say that this was not original to the text. It is original to the text. But they were believing that why in the world would someone need to hear the same message three times? And then we look at our own hearts. I need to be reminded over and over and over again of the goodness of God. Abram is being reminded, because what happened immediately after the promise in chapter 12? What did Abram do? He went to Egypt, and he forgot the Lord's goodness. He forgot the Lord's promise. And he, because of his fear, he fell into a terrible decision. We saw last week how after chapter 15, God has reassured him in his doubts, Abram and Sarai decide that they're going to take things into their own hands with Hagar, and they forgot and they failed, and they caused all sorts of problems. And here in chapter 17, we see the graciousness of God coming to Abram again, telling him of his promises that he is good and that they will come to pass. And you and I, we're not that much different. We, we forget the promises of God so easily. And it may seem repetitive to hear kind of the same message again, but just like Abram and Sarah, we need to hear the gospel over and over and over again. There's an old story that's kind of legend about Martin Luther, the great reformer uh, in the Protestant Reformation. And in the, in the 1500s, there was a, supposedly a church member that came to Luther and said, uh, why do you keep talking to us about Jesus over and over again. There's lots of stuff in the Bible you can talk about. It always seems to be that your message is about Jesus or ends up on Jesus. We want to talk about something new. And he said, well, I'll start talking about something new when you start believing the gospel. I'll start talking about something new when you come in here looking like people who believe it. And the reality is, is we are the same way because we leave church on a Sunday or we leave community group and we're full. We've been singing We sing about how God is worthy of more glory, where we're so full, we believe it, we believe we're forgiven and we get to Tuesday and we forget it, we fall again. We leave here believing, man, I'm so loved by God, God satisfies my soul and we get to midweek and we start to doubt it. We believe we're a part of a community and we're loved by the church and then we start to feel insecure about whether people actually like us and will accept us as we are. And the reason that we leave and we forget is that here, when we're hearing the gospel message, it is crystal clear. We're hearing about the love and the faithfulness of Jesus, his life, death and resurrection on the cross for us. But the second that you leave the door, you're being bombarded by messaging. You're being bombarded by messaging saying that your worth and your value comes from your career, that your worth and your value and your dignity comes from your relationship, that your worth comes from all these other things. And we have to learn to quiet our hearts, push all the other messaging away, and hear God and remember his faithfulness to us. And what helps us remember this is God's covenant promise. An agreement between two parties, as we saw in chapter 15, that one says, I'm going to stake my very life on this promise. And so we're going to dig in today on how this covenant helps us, that helps us remember and rehearse the gospel. So let's look at how God reminds Abram and Sarai with the covenant and the hope that this gives us. So this morning, the covenant is going to answer three questions for us. The first question it's going to answer is, what does God promise? So what does God promise? We look at verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. Now, there's been a very large time jump. If you look at the end of chapter 16, Abram was 86. Where did the years go? 13 years later, here is Abram. If you've ever watched a TV show where they make a very large time jump, um, you know what we're talking about. So if you ever watch Stranger Things, uh, they eventually had to make a time jump because they couldn't film fast enough to make them look like they were their age. It's like, why does that 13-year-old have a 5 o'clock shadow? Like, you're trying to help them see that. There's a large time jump here. There's a time jump, and now they're... Abram's 80, or ninety-nine, Sarai is now ninety, and it has been thirteen years since Ishmael was born. Ishmael was the son of Abram and Hagar, and there have been thirteen more years of waiting. Thirteen more years of Abram and Sarai waiting on the promises of God to come to pass that they would have a son. And the way that God introduces himself is absolutely incredible here. It says that he, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Now, if you look at the way that God says that, the word there literally is El Shaddai, which means majesty and power, or the God who is sufficient. And so God is coming in power. If you look at chapter 12, he comes calling. You look at chapter 15, he comes with a sense of gentleness to reassure Abram and his doubts. And here he comes in power in a way as if to say, I am God above all. I am God who is powerful enough to bring this to pass. I am worthy of a worship and praise. And in verse 3, Abram's reaction is incredible. It says that Abram fell on his face. He fell on his face before the Lord as if the power had left his legs. And for whatever reason, this seems to be the first time in the book of Genesis that Abram is laying face down before God in worship. There's a difference between saying, God, I trust you, and being helpless before him. There's a difference in verbally saying, God, I believe that you are good, I trust you, I'll do what you tell me to do, and laying before him and saying, God, only you can do this. He has reached a point of desperation. Many of you may have seen this week uh, about what's happening at Asbury College and seminary outside of Lexington, Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, there is a massive revival occurring right now. On Wednesday, they started having chapel. They're still going. And, and people have gone and verified this. This is not just you know a show. People have gone and said there's a move of the Spirit happening at this college. And what's happening is, is, is it started with someone confessing sin. It started with someone saying, I, I need the Lord to help me in this crippling sin. And what broke out from there was prayer, worship, confession of sin. They started canceling classes. People from the community have started to come and gather there. It is still going this morning. And what happened is a place of being faced down in utter desperation before the Lord. Abram here is finally driven to the point of utter desperation, to the point where he says, I have nowhere else to turn. Time is up. There are no other solutions. There's no backup plan. There's no way for me to work my way out of this. And God is now promising him something that is well beyond his ability to achieve it. But as Alistair Begg says, impossible is not in the vocabulary of God. God majors in the impossible. And Begg knows, he says that we as people have decided that there are so many things that are impossible for God. That if I invite that unbelieving friend to church, that they're never going to come. That if I remember and pray for my loved one who's struggling or who needs to have a relationship with Jesus, that God really can't save them, that I can't make it in a tough place like Boston, that God will not provide for me, that God does not see me or care for me. But what if God wants to do the impossible in us to utterly humble us? What if God wants to draw us to a place of face-on-the-floor dependency that we realize we need Him more than anything else? I have a very dangerous prayer for our church, and God seems to answer dangerous prayers. My prayer has been from day one that God would do something in our church that only He could get credit for. That God would do something in City on a Hill Church that other people would look at and say, this is the Lord at work. This is not because Stephen's a good preacher. This is not because our music's good. This is not because our people are nice enough. It's not because we have a great facility. That only the work of the Lord could make this happen. That's a dangerous prayer. That's a desperate prayer. And my question for you is, are you praying prayers like that for yourself? Are you praying prayers like that for our church? Are you praying prayers that it would take God moving in a mighty way to make them happen? And maybe you're waiting and you're laboring in prayer right now, and that is God bringing you to a place where you stop trusting yourself, where you stop trying to engineer a plan to make things work, where you stop trying to work your way out, but you just lay down before him on your face in dependency. And in this place of dependency, God comes back and makes three promises to Abraham. I'm not going to spend a ton of time here because we've covered these pretty extensively. He's reminding, confirming these things again. I do want to mention them. The first thing he mentions is that he's going to have a family. Look at verse 4. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. God skips right over the son. That's been the sticking point the entire time, right? I, I, God, if, I, if I'm going to have a nation, I've got to have a son. He says, I'm going to make you the father of nations. Verse 6 he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you not only the father of, of nations, but I'll make you into king nations and kings. They shall come from you. All of these people are going to come from you. And in verse 5, he says at the end, he says, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. What is God saying to Abram? He's saying that the future promises that I will bring to you, is as if they're already done. I have made them happen. Because because there are no ifs in the kingdom of God. There are no ifs when it comes to the promises of God. God is so sure that he changes their name. He changes their name. He changes Abram's name to Abraham, which means in verse 5 a father of a multitude. I mean, this is, put, this is calling your shot. I just saw this week, and this happens every year, where there was a Chiefs fan who got a tattoo on his arm that said, 2023 Super Bowl champions. You, you better be pretty sure if you're going to tattoo that on your skin, God is saying, I am so sure this is going to happen, I'm changing your name to Abraham. It's the same thing with Sarai. I'm going to change your name from Sarai to Sarah in verse 16. I will bless her and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations, kings of people, of people shall come from her. Her name means princess. She's going to be the fountain of a whole wealth of nations. She's the source. Even their future son Isaac. The name Isaac means laughter. Later we see that Abraham laughs at this idea. Sarah next week we'll see laughs at the idea of God providing in this way. But it also means on one whom God smiles. And so every time they looked at their son, they had to remember that God had smiled upon them, that God has smiled upon their kid. And I'm sure there were times along the way where Abram slipped up and called Sarah, Sarai, and I'm sure that she called him Abram, and they had to stop and remind each other, no, 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 God has given us a new name because God fulfilled his promises. So God gives them a family, but God also gives them a home. We see this in verse eight. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an eternal possession. They've been wandering and sojourning, and his his future descendants would wander for hundreds of years, finally trying to find their way to this place that would be a home. And we understand what that feels like as we feel homeless in this world, and God will one day provide us a home too. But the last promise is kind of unique the end of verse 8, I will be their God. Now this one seems sort of new because most of the promises so so far have been around the land and the people and the possessions, but this promise is the one that makes all the other promises possible. This is the promise that makes the idea of the land and the sun and, and the people possible because every promise that God makes is backed up by his power to fulfill it. There used to be a day where you would write checks. We were joking about this in our pre-service prayer about how we all give now by you know by doing it online. We have a box in the back for people who have cash, but like no one uses checks anymore. And there used to be a time in church where you'd have like check writing music where you could there'd be music in the background, use like a piano, and so be writing your check to drop in the offering plate. But back in the day, if a check was only as good as the person who wrote it. A check was only as good as the person who wrote it. So if you're like your sketchy cousin was writing you a check. There, you knew there was no money in the bank, but God is writing a check that he, you were able to cash. God is making promises that will come to fruition and we will have them eternally in an everlasting promise because God is eternal and He does not change. Or as Marshall Seagal says, that every good we receive has its roots in one extravagant promise, I will be their God and in Christ, your God. Now, the the three promises that were made to Abraham were also made to his descendants. And so we see that it was made to his physical descendants in the Old Testament, but the New Testament tells us that the true children of Abraham are those who place their faith in Christ. Galatians 3, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What does that mean? It means that because of Christ, you now have a family. You've been brought into God's family, or as Galatians 4 says, that we've been adopted as sons and daughters of God. You have a home, that all of our restless wanderings will find their home in God himself, and that you have a God who cares for you and loves you forever. And we begin to experience this in part as the church. The church is this kind of pre-heaven vision of what heaven is going to look like, what the new heavens and the new earth are going to be. That we get this family where we get to love and care for each other as, as brothers and sisters in Christ called from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That this can truly be a home, a safe place, and then we get to look to God together who loves us. Are you taking advantage of what God promises you? So God promises, that's the first question, what does God promise? But the other side of the covenant is what does God expect What does God expect from us? Now, Dallas Willard says that grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Um, God is opposed to us trying to earn our salvation or earn a place in his family. And so this isn't about earning a blessing or, or proving ourselves, but there are some expectations that God has on his people. There's a proper way to receive the promises of God, and this is why saying a prayer is not magic. You know, saying a prayer to to be saved doesn't save you. It's God who saves you. It's faith in Christ that saves you. And so our relationship with God is purely an act of His grace, and we have to receive it by fulfilling what our end of the deal would be. And here's what God expects from us to fulfill our end of the covenant. He expects us to come to Him with a whole heart. There's a wholeheartedness that God God calls for us to have. What does that look like? Verse 1, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. The idea of walking is, is a way of life, that we're walking in such a way that is devoted to God, in such a way that it's not hypocritical, it's not inconsistent, but that we're walking with Him step by step. A devotion that says your glory is first, your glory the most, your glory alone. It's a posture of giving over control to God and saying, I will walk in whatever way you call me to. I'll be blameless. I won't miss the mark because you are good and you lead me to life. But we so often want to try to grab for that control. I'm about to have to teach a teenager how to drive. Um, And there are going to be many times where I'm gonna feel very out of control and I feel like I'm going to die. Um, I remember being uh, 14, 14 the first time I was actually able to driving a car. And my mom said, hey, I want you to drive the car out of the driveway. And so, and if you knew where I lived, there were, you drive out of the driveway, you go down the road and there were like two giant caverns off the side of this road. I don't know why this was the first test. And it's like, you know, it's like you fall off into the Grand Canyon over here. And so we pull out of the driveway and as we go, I just kind of keep making like a circle, and we almost go into the cavern. I spin the wheel and turn us around. My mom is yelling. Everyone's crying. There was de- She definitely wanted to grab for the wheel. I'm sure there are going to be times that I want to grab for that wheel too when I'm teaching Lily to drive. When life is hard, when it feels out of control, what we want to do is we want to grab the wheel and turn it in the direction we want to go. We want to want to walk in the way, not this blameless, not the way this before the Lord, but the way that we feel leads to safety. the way that we feel leads to life, the way that we feel leads to flourishing. But what God is saying is, even when it's hard, trust me with your whole heart. See, wholeheartedness means whole obedience. It means obedience from the heart, like Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, that it's not just doing the actions, ticking off the list. It's loving him more than anything and saying that, God, I want to obey you from a right heart. And here, God leaves no half measures for Abraham. He says, Abraham, I want you to circumcise yourself, your children, everyone in your household. And he goes to great pains to explain this has to be every single person. And Abraham, it says, that very day obey the Lord. So God expects our whole heart. He expects our whole obedience. But he also wants to, us to approach him by faith. We approach God by faith. It's a, a type of trust that leads to action. It's like when you're a little kid and your parents were at, at, telling you to jump into the swimming pool. They're waiting for you to, to, to catch you. And you say, do you trust me? And they're like, you're like, yes, but you don't jump into the pool. You don't actually trust your parents. God is calling Abraham to take the leap, to trust him. And we see this in verses 15 through 21 as he begins to slowly unpack this with Abraham. And he tells him in verse 16, I will bless her and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations, kings of peoples, shall come from her. So he tells Abraham again of what he's going to do. And I find Abram's response just absolutely amazing. I think we're seeing faith working itself out in real time. Faith faith isn't brainless. We're actually working and wrestling with God. It reveals his heart in this. And in verse 17, it says, Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? He's working this out in real time. He falls before God in worship, laughs, and then tries to kind of reason it away. And in verse 18, he just goes to what's practical. He says, well, you know, we've, we've got Ishmael. Um, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. This seems attainable. This, this seems possible. Have you, have you ever done that? Where you say, God, this other solution seems like something I could handle. This, this other thing you're asking me to do seems like something that I could possibly do. This Talking to this person seems a little less intimidating. This place over here seems less difficult. This over here seems like the easier path. This seems, that has to be what you're calling me into. And in verse 19, we see God stretch His faith when he says, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Now, God is gracious. He blesses Ishmael. He says, as for Ishmael, verse 20, I've heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. Verse 21, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And what this shows us is that God stretches our faith in such a way that we see that faith is not God adding a little bit to our best efforts. It's not God boosting us up over the wall when we could have gotten there mostly on our own. It's us saying, God, I need you to do what I can't do. I I can't be strong enough. I can't be peaceful enough. I, I can't be kind enough. I I can't care about injustice or the poor enough. I can't be good enough or moral enough or obedient enough. I can't love you with my whole heart. I I can't do this without your help. And it's in this wrestling with God, this wrestling of faith, that we see two things. Number one, I can't do it. The gospel, first of all, gives us the bad news. We can't do it on our own. But then gives us the good news and shows us that Jesus has your devotion is going to waver. Your your obedience is going to be sporadic at best. And if you go alone, you are in trouble. But we look at how Jesus was totally faithful, how Jesus was completely obedient, and how the work of Christ for you, His life, His death, and His resurrection, if you place your faith in that, that is counted to you as righteousness, meaning it's it's as if you did it. It's as if you have a whole heart before God. It's as if you're completely obedient. It's as if you have faith that never wavers. And this is what it means in 2 Corinthians 5, where it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, there's one more element that God expected from Abraham, and that was circumcision. Now, what exactly is circumcision? We're going to keep this PG this morning. Verse 9 whether born into your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Now, why circumcision? Circumcision was ordained by God, was what we would call an ordinance or a sacrament, to be two things, to be a sign and to be a seal. Be a sign and a seal. And that sign was the sign of an, it was an outward symbol of an inward work. It was an outward symbol of an inward work of God. And what it described was was the discarding of old ways. Uncircumcision was often associated with uncleanness and pagan worship. We don't believe that necessarily now. But the way that it was a sign is saying, this is what your heart should look like. In your heart, you should be discarding the old way of life and leaning into a new way of life. And this is why Ezekiel says that our hearts are to be circumcised. So it's an outward sign of an inward work, but it's also a sign that you've been set apart, that they were set apart versus a community. The, the entire house was to do this. And it was the symbol that we are in this together, that we're part of a family together, that we receive the blessings of God together as a people submitted to God. It was a sign that they were set apart to God to to be holy as he is holy. And so the sign points to the work of God to call them, make them holy and make them his people. But it also served as a seal And the seal in the ancient world was was a wax seal. So they have a letter. You may have seen this in an old movie. And they would take a wax seal and it sealed the letter. And what that did, it was, you know, we don't have AI. It didn't have AI back then to tell you whether it was a forgery or not. The seal was the way that you knew it was authentic. And what it's doing is saying is that this sign of uh, the seal of circumcision is showing that your faith is authentic, that you belong to God, that he honors this act of obedience. So what does this mean for us? Does does this still apply? In fact, there's a lot of, we don't have time to unpack everything in the New Testament about why either circumcision or uncircumcision physically is what saves us. But Jesus fulfilled this Old Testament promise. He fulfilled it to Abraham so that everybody who believed and trusted in this sign and seal would be saved, but also that anyone who trusted in him would, since then would be considered children of God who'd received these promises. We see this in Romans 4, in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Skipping down to verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through, who, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And so, for us, is there a similar sign and seal that helps us believe this? The answer is yes. That is the sign and seal of baptism. Baptism is a sign for entering into the kingdom of God. And we believe that it's for those who professed faith in Christ. And once you profess faith in Jesus, you're brought into God's family. And we see that Jesus did this as a pattern. It says in verse, Matthew chapter 13, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my son, my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus did this as a pattern for you and I to step into as a symbol and a sign of what God has done in us inwardly. It's an outward sign of the washing away of sin. Not that baptism actually washes away our sin, but the Spirit inside of us makes us clean, makes us new. And the reason that we do this as a church and we celebrate this is what it symbolizes is that you're entering into a family. We, we, did, bapt- we done, did five baptisms last year. We prayed to do more this year. And what's a symbol is as you're being baptized and you're raised from the water, you have other people around you cheering for you, committing, saying, I am for you, and I'm going to help you follow Jesus. It means that you are entering into a home, a safe place with God and His people, and it's a picture that God is your God and is faithful to you. And so if you've not been baptized, I would encourage you to do so. I would encourage you to take that next step of obedience, that sign and the seal of your salvation, so you can fill out that yellow card and drop it in the box in the bag mentioning that you want to be Baptized. Now, quickly, as we wrap up, the last question that the covenant answers, who is this for? Who is this promise for? And it's simply for anyone who wants it and for anyone who's willing to receive it. Now, if you look at the language here, it's very inclusive. He says, he tells Abraham, it's not just you, it's everybody in your house. It's not just you. I want everyone in your house to take this on, whether they were born into your house, whether they were bought into your house, whether they're... Hebrew, whether they're a foreigner, every single one of them now has access to the blessings that I'm promising. Women were able to enter into this promise through being a part of this household. And we see the access that we have through Christ in Galatians 3. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Christ Jesus. The blessing that God offers you through Christ is yours if you're willing to receive it. The blessing of of eternal life, the blessing of the forgiveness of your sin, the blessing of your shame being removed is available to you if you will take it. There's a warning in verse 14 to not reject the blessing of God and risk being cut off from God. Will you take what Jesus offers you today? Yes, it seems costly. It means giving your life to Jesus, but what you'll find is that he's better than anything you could ever imagine living for. Let's pray.